0: Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion, Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American, Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. KickServeRadio.com is presented to you by SquadPod, committed to protecting your privacy and your business. Communicate safely with SquadPod. And Bracket spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, an interactive mobile game where being aligned with celebrities and athletes has a nice payoff for you and charity. Take it away, AZ.
1: And take it away, I will. Welcome everybody, KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Andy Zoden, and as you all know by now, I am always joined by Seven-time Grand Slam champion, former world number one, Mats Vlander. Texas Longhorn two-time All-American Johnny Levine will be joining us a little later in the show. But Mats, you and I kick it off. There's so much to talk about. We've got Novak Djokovic's antics, if you will, at the Olympics. Uh, We don't even really know necessarily who won the medals there, although I did have to look it up. But the big story was was Djokovic. We've got Mackie McDonald to talk about. We've got Jensen Brooksby to talk about. We've got Danielle Collins to talk about. Your boy, Yannick Sinner, to talk about. But we have no choice. We would be remiss not to start with the birthday boy himself, as this is the 40th birthday of Roger Federer. Not to mention the fact that it also happens to be the 60th birthday of one Brad Gilbert. So we'll get to all that as the show goes on. I want to hear some thoughts on you looking back on Roger's career and the fact that he's turning 40. Let's do start with that. How old does that make you feel?
2: <laughs> Andy, thanks. Great to be with you uh, again, like always. I, to me, Roger Federer at 40, the, the, the problem that I have with him being 40 years old is that he really doesn't look like he's 40. Uh, he doesn't look it in his body. He doesn't uh, look at in it with his hair. Um, he hasn't doesn't have a little gut. He doesn't have a stomach at all. I mean, he looks as fit and as young as ever. He just looks more elegant, and I think that's really hard to imagine. But I think with age, he gets more and more elegant. His game is obviously the same. Um, I find it very interesting that. Uh, uh, I can't see an end in sight. But I just do not want to see a 40-year-old come out and and uh, do what he did in Wimbledon. Because, I mean, it was kind of painful for us. But I know how painful it was for him to lose that third set against Hubert Hurkacz. Uh, a bagel, six love. Um, so I think that uh, it's very difficult for Roger Federer uh, to decide where his mind is at. His body is 40 years old but his mind needs to be maximum 30 years old when it comes to the spirit of winning tennis matches.
1: My first glimpse of Roger Federer when I first heard of him, when he was about a 15 or 16-year-old kid, I saw a little magazine article and I saw this picture of this kid that seemed like he was about to OD on hydrogen peroxide in his hair. And I thought to myself, okay, trying to be like Andre much? And then a couple of years later, I would hear someone Talk about Roger alongside Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi when he was describing these tennis players that were going to transcend the sport. And Roger had not yet won a major, and yet this person threw them in with Pete and Andre. And I thought, wow, that's pretty high praise. What was your first glimpse of Roger Federer, Matt's?
2: Well, I actually heard of him before I saw him. Uh, Because a Swedish former player, Peter Lundgren, uh, was coaching Roger Federer. And he kept saying this, this kid in Switzerland who hits the ball better than anyone he's ever seen. So clean. What's so cool is that he's had sort of three careers to me or even four. He had that when he was really young. Of course, he beat Pete Sampras at Wimbledon. Uh, But he had a temper in those days didn't win Wimbledon the year he beat Pete Sampras. And then suddenly he comes along and he starts winning majors. But after Leighton Hewitt won a couple, after Marat Safin won his first, and of course they are the same age. So suddenly Roger Federer started winning. And then he was dominating completely. Of course, throw Andy Roddick in there too. Uh, And then he was dominating. And then he got beaten up badly by Rafa Nadal. And I thought, well, that's it. Roger Federer, the great Roger Federer, is most probably done. But then the next phase of his career is, to me, what makes Roger Federer, um, as long as they're all on 20, the greatest player of all time so far, is the fact that he was able to come back against a generation that is five, six years younger than him. And he started winning majors again, winning Wimbledon uh, once against Marin Cilic in the final, of course. Australian Open twice, Rafa once, Cilic again. Uh, and that's what makes him so great. He really uh, withstood the, the test of time in terms of his tennis game, but maybe more importantly, in terms of his mindset. So I think the fierce competitor that most probably most people most probably didn't know was in there, we see it. And we've seen it through through the, the, the 22, 23 years that he's been uh, a threat winning Grand Slams. And I think that's the biggest surprise to me and to a lot of people, is there's a competitor inside Roger Federer that is as fierce as the one of Nadal and Djokovic.
1: And to speak more, Matts, to the fierce competitor that Roger was and is, here are a couple of statistics throughout his career that some of the younger generation may not be aware of, but I know you're well aware of these things, but I'm going to remind you of them. This is a guy, Matts that won 27 straight Grand Slam matches two different times in his career, only to have both of those winning streaks un- upended by, as you can well imagine, Raphael Nadal at the French. Now, you won three of the four majors in 1988, but what was your longest ever win streak of Grand Slam matches
2: um, well, it was seven at the Australian Open in 1988, seven at the French Open. So 14. And then I won four at Wimbledon this year. I made the quarter, so 18. Yeah, I mean, the statistics, the, the uh, consistency of Roger Federer in Grand Slam tournaments, I mean, that's just, it's just incredible.
1: Matts, you won seven major championships in your career, one of very few men to ever do it. Roger Federer won his first seven consecutive major finals before he withstood his first loss in the final of a major seven straight wins. Normally you have to learn a little something in a major final before you can win one. Roger won seven straight before taking a loss, of course, to Nadal at the French.
2: Yeah, no, again, I mean, why was he able to do that? Because he was able to, first of all, play on all the, on the three different surfaces. Um, of course, without Rafa, he would have won, I don't know, three, four French Opens. But I think that the, um, the variety of his game really showed on hard courts and on grass courts and even on clay. But the, the other thing that, I, Andy, I want to bring up, and you're great. Actually, it's great that you're listening because I heard this story uh, in Indian Wells. And I, we don't really think of Roger Federer as a comedian, but he's become <laughs> funny in all these interviews on court. I've and uh, in the tournament in Indian Wells… Uh, he, was, uh, he had a press conference and some guy uh, asked about Switzerland and Davis Cup this year. Mm-hmm. And, and Roger said something like, well, you should read up more about Switzerland and me because we're not in the Davis Cup.
1: No, it was actually the quote, Matt, was better research next time, buddy.
2: Better research next time. And that was to you, Andy. So, <laughs> but, but, but then there's the human in Roger Federer. You, as, as, a, uh, as a great human being and a, and a tennis coach, of course, talk to me, tell me what you think of Roger as just a human being, the way he approaches people, the way he is in press conference. I mean, we've never seen that either before.
1: Well, a lot of people were sort of like felt sorry for me because of the way I was embarrassed my wife not the least of which I really enjoyed that moment with Roger he smiled if you ever youtube there is a video of it i'm afraid to say and i think it's got about 900,000 hits so that was my viral moment with Roger but i think as as a human being he reminds me a lot of what we used to think of John F Kennedy Jr as a guy that was a bigger than life person that was idolized by everyone around the world and yet showed tremendous respect for you know everybody from the tournament organizers to his opponents to the ball kids to the you know the maintenance people whoever it might have been Roger Federer was with rare exception would be my my tendency to think with rare exception would he um would he disrespect you and I feel the same way about you Mats so and I think that that uh, what I heard about Roger training with some of the Swedish players when he was young, I think you guys rub- rubbed off on him in a very positive way. So I credit you and Stefan and the boys that actually I think Roger looked up to as one of the reasons why he ended up being such a great humanitarian and a respectful guy that you really want to emulate and you want the kids to try to emulate as well.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the big difference is that I've never seen Roger be disrespectful of the game that we love. Um, I certainly had moments in my career where I know on the inside that I could care less about this match because... Uh, it's a smaller tournament, whatever. I've never seen Roger Federer do that. Yes, early in his career, was he slightly disrespectful to the equipment, to his rackets? He broke a few. Uh, I've seen and I've heard, but I think uh, so. He, his his uh, temperament maybe wasn't as stable, but but in terms of giving his all, I've never seen that. I've never seen him be disrespectful to the game. That that again, and I always I'm always the one saying it. Roger Federer has done a lot for the world of tennis, but tennis. He's done a lot more for Roger Federer. And I think he knows that. And that's a lot of people would put it the other way. But Roger Federer knows that tennis has given him basically everything. Met his wife, Mirka, through tennis, goes through that, four kids. And, and everything he does, his foundation is based on, on him uh, making money and playing tennis. So I think that's why, that's why I love Roger Federer basically more than any player uh, that's ever played the game because there's so many different sides to him and they're all just so nice.
1: Well, and I'm going to give a couple of more quick statistics. Then I want to bring Johnny Levine in 39 wins combined be, uh, over Joker and Rafa. 39 wins between the between those two. He was uh, 20 and 11 in Grand Slam finals. obviously we know he's won 20, another 11 finals. Now he's the most he's the winningest player in the history of grass court tennis having won 19 titles. Pete Sampras is number two with 10 grass court titles. So tremendous dominance. Uh, amazing to think of this guy at 40 years of age. And I bring in Johnny Levine now who had, uh, who's been on assignment. Let's just say that. And Johnny, we'll let you have the last word on on Roger Federer before we make a comment about Brad Gilbert and his 60th birthday. But uh, off air, you made the
3: comment, how in the world is a 40 year old guy top 10 in the world? Speak to that. Well, I'd like to understand that because I I don't know if that's ever been, I guess, Ken Rosewall. um, We had Jimmy Connors late, late age, uh, be one of the top players in the world, but I don't think we've ever seen anything like Federer. You know, we wanted to see him potentially, you know, maybe even win Wimbledon this year, but I think father time is uh, catching up to Mr. Federer. Unfortunately, um, I don't know how much longer he's going to go. I, I, I just can't see it now with the knee again. Just an amazing longevity of a career, one that we might not ever see again, and um, probably the best thing that's ever happened to tennis, uh, Roger Federer for sure.
1: All right, Brad Gilbert turned 60 as well. Certainly not the same playing career as Roger Federer, but you know what? This is a guy that's meant a lot to the game. He's been doing uh, you know, commentary and analysis for ESPN for many years. He wrote the book uh Winning Ugly, which he is obviously known for, and Mats, I've got to believe that you and and Brad Gilbert tangled at some time or another during those years.
2: Yeah, we've played a couple of times. I know um I, that I went down to him once for sure. Uh, But to be honest, the first time I saw Brad Gilbert was in a tournament in Bangkok, uh, Thailand in 1981. Uh, I happened to make the finals, uh, lost to um, uh, the late, great Bill Scanlon. He toyed with me in the finals. uh, And uh, Brad Gilbert played the qualifying. And I was there with Joachim Neustrom, Anders Jarrett and Hans Simonson. uh, And we were sort of walking around and... Practicing outdoors, playing indoors. And then we saw, heard this guy, this American guy who did not stop talking. He was talking absolutely <laughs> nonstop. And to us, Swedes, that is the weirdest, we thought maybe even rude thing that you can do, especially as his opponent, he was playing an, an, an Asian an Asian player who most probably didn't quite understand Brad, but but to believe that that player then became the player that Brad Gilbert uh, actually became, being pretty solid in the top 10. And then on top of that, becoming the coach that Brad Gilbert was, because he was an unbelievable right. tennis coach uh, with, obviously, uh, Andy Roddick, um, Andre Agassi, Andy Murray, and then, of course, being an analyst on ESPN and writing this book, Winning Ugly, which I think in many people's eyes is maybe uh, one of the most important tennis books out there. So, so, yes, we used to say he's got verbal diarrhea, and he used it in a proper way, and he's a big name. He's really helped professional tennis move in the right direction. So a lot of respect for, for Brad, and uh, happy birthday, Beach. All right.
1: Well, obviously, Johnny, having gotten used to being around the likes of Bjorn Borg, it would seem like Brad would be a guy that would have talked a lot in comparison to what the kind of Swedish tennis model would
3: have been. You guys have a history as well. Talk about it. Well, not many people know this, but uh, Brad Gilbert actually went to Arizona state university and I believe it might've been 1979. Uh, uh, The tennis coach at that time was a guy named Marty Pincus, who was a tremendous recruiter. And had great teams. And um, me and my father were super close to Marty. And I used to go out and practice with the team. I was in, you know, 16s and 18s. I'd go out and practice with the college teams. Marty was kind enough to to let me come in and and, and hit with some of these guys. So I got to know him real well. And um, and Brad was one of them in, in 79. I think I was like maybe 16 years old. So I got pretty friendly with Brad then. Had seen him play in the fiesta bowl in phoenix years prior but um you know brad brad was excited to be at asu and unfortunately um marty had a great tenure and had great success at at that school but they kind of cleaned house because of the football program had some problems and marty ended up um you know getting let go which was just crazy because he was the the i mean he just lived for asu all sports and then Myron McNamara came in from from Southern California, and Brad didn't really hit it off with Myron, and uh, ended up leaving and going to Foothill um, Community College, Junior College. So that that was my first real you know closeness to Brad. And then eventually, um, you know, did play in the doubles with him at the Maccabee Games in Israel, and then we played some some doubles on the tour as well. Um, and then his, his brother Barry actually coached me for a little bit. So, and, and I was very close, knew the family real well. So, so I do want to wish Brad a happy birthday. And I think he's been great for tennis as well. Like Matt said, I think he's phenomenal commentator and I love his nicknames. I think they're funny. And I think he adds a lot to the game. And, uh, I think, I think he's got a great following and, um, his knowledge is just, uh, you know, it's off the charts for sure. Well, and I will
1: just add that, uh, yes, happy birthday, Brad, and that in your infinite humility, Johnny, you played with him in the in the Maccabee games. You won it with him, so let's make sure that people understand that. So that was cool. But I had a moment with him when we were doing a radio interview um, and we were promoting the 2019 Arizona Tennis Classic, which was your tournament, Johnny. Brad made the comment to me that's what's what is cool about these challengers is that you never know – when you might discover a player that is on the brink. And where Johnny's tournament is placed, being during the second week of Indian Wells, there's a real good chance that you guys are going to see some players that are on the verge of stardom. Well, Matteo Berrettini won that tournament. Lorenzo Sonego was in that tournament. Casper Rude was in that tournament. Jamie Murray won the doubles. Of course, he was not already an established double star, but he couldn't have been more right about that prognostication, saying that we might be seeing somebody that was on the verge of stardom. Because here comes a guy, Matteo Berrettini, 57 in the world, comes to Arizona innocently enough, and would end up eight in the world that year, losing the semis of the U.S. Open to Rafael Nadal in a good four-setter, and then make it all the way to O2 Arena in London. So there you go. Happy birthday, Roger Federer, number 40. Happy birthday, Brad Gilbert, number 60. Great synergy there. When we come back, we got a lot to talk about because some of these players, Johnny, that you've been talking about with your up-and-comers list are now... They're coming up faster than people thought. And uh, so we're going to get to that when we come back on kickserveradio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. So don't go away. I am joined by Squad Pod's head of strategy, Jenny Jerome. And Jenny, I have to ask you this question. There are so many new communication platforms and people are trying to accentuate privacy for obvious reasons. People are trying to stay out of trouble on social media. But why SquadPod?
4: SquadPod was built on privacy. So we were originally built for businesses, but we're finding that a lot of people are using us on college campuses because a student can say something, you know, kids being kids, and all of a sudden that's now come back, taken out of context, and it just bites them in the chuchus and it interferes with their job recruitment. It can interfere with them even getting into college, getting into grad schools. So, We're used a lot and we have a really good focus whenever you're dealing with kids, being kids, but also whenever you're dealing on the sports side with intramural sports or any type of team communication that you want to have between you and your players.
1: So keeping our college youth out of trouble when it's time to enter the real world and protecting proprietary intellectual properties and everything in between is something that really can be protected by squad pod.
4: Exactly. Another thing, Andy, that's important is you hear a lot about bullying. You hear a lot about stalking, things like that on social media. Well, with SquadPod, because it's closed architecture, the people that you have in your squad, the people that you invite onto this app are only the people that you invite to the squad. So you're actually communicating with the people that you choose to have and that you choose to engage with. So it cuts down a lot on the bullying, things like that, because if somebody does get a little untoward, let's say, on the app, You can just remove them and say, no, that kind of conversation does not belong on my team.
1: Lots of advantages. She's Jenny Jerome. She is head of strategy at Squad Pod. Jenny, thanks so much for joining us. Check it out. It's squadpod.com. Go check it out right now. And welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We've wished a happy birthday to Roger Federer and Brad Gilbert in the previous segment. And now we are on to what is going on. And I'm going to jump right into this whole Jensen Brooksby thing because, Johnny, you have been talking about this guy in your up-and-comers segment for several shows running. And here this guy shows up and makes it to the semis of Washington, D.C., beats Francis TFO, beats Felix Auger-Aliasimi, beats somebody badly in the quarters. I can't even remember who, but, I mean, a bunch of good wins along the way, Matt. You can probably remind me. But, Johnny, you seem to have developed a little bit of a love-hate relationship with this kid who spent one semester at Baylor because you love the fact that the kid just flat out knows how to win, but there are certain things about his game that it doesn't seem that you find, let's call it, Pleasing to the eye.
3: Fair enough? I think it is fair enough. I mean, he he seems to be, I just don't see the athleticism, although he's a big, big guy that is a, is, is a great counterpuncher. I mean, and his serve has improved. I mean, I remember seeing him at the Open when he, you know, was the wild card winning Kalamazoo, and I, I believe he might have beaten Thomas Burdick and then he lost to Millman, or maybe the, the the year that he beat, that he won Kalamazoo, he lost to Millman in the first round. Now, that was the guy that you were talking about that he beat in the quarters.
1: He beat him two and one, right? Yeah, yeah
3: which is incredible Yeah, because Millman hand, handled him pretty good. The guy is 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 mentally just a rock, and um, he gets to every ball. He's a tremendous counterpuncher, and he, his serve is very good. Um, his mental is amazing. And 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 w- what I was kind of the unorthodox stroke that I, I find just fascinating for a guy at this level is this two handed backhand slice. I mean, it it really looks like a novice. Maybe maybe he's doing so well and he's got this tremendously awful looking backhand slice that all he has to do. I mean, he can just keep getting better and better. So I think he needs to take a lesson on the backhand slice from Mats Vlander because Mats's was <laughs> yeah. beautiful, and it came out of nowhere in that final against Lendl at the U.S. Open. So I need to know what Mats thinks of that slice backhand.
2: Well, I'm obviously um, a big-time enemy uh, towards the two-handed slice. I've never seen a great two-handed slice except for one player, and he was hitting two-handed slices on both sides. Fabrice? Yes, Fabrice Santoro. He was hitting slice forehands. He was hitting slice backhands with two hands. But he had uh, some of the best hands that uh, we've ever seen or that ever held onto a tennis racket. With Brooksby, I don't know. Does he have good hands? He must have great hands. I think when I'm watching him, I'm going to towards Jim Courier a little bit, a little bit of Jim Courier's backhand. And Jim Courier's backhand wasn't great because his forehand was so good but somehow Jim figured out how how to um how to sort of play around his backhand he learned how to slice the backhand but but also a kind of an an, an orthodox style in Jim Courier but we don't have to go back that far Daniel Medvedev I mean before Daniel Medvedev broke through uh, onto the scene have you ever have you seen anyone play tennis the way Daniel Medvedev plays tennis no nope. not really to me I think he's got an advantage uh because brooksby because he's hitting it so differently that for every player he plays it's got they gotta have the same view that you just did johnny like what is this what can he do with this shot can he hit side spin can he hit backspin? what is where does his backhand go you can't read that thing there's no way of knowing where he's hitting that um forehand sort of the same thing very difficult to read But on top of it all, just like Jim Courier, he has a great mind on his shoulders. Uh, Really an amazing competitor. And like you said, Johnny, how does he move? He moves well because he gets to everything, but it doesn't really look like he's going to move well. So he's got a lot of natural talent for sure. And maybe uh, in the long run, hitting the ball completely different from everybody might actually work out to be an advantage. Unless, of course, it limits him from hitting certain shots. But so far, I haven't seen the limits.
1: I want to turn our attention to a guy who really deserves it, which is Mackenzie McDonald because what a run he had uh, to the final. Uh, in, in particular, the win over Kenny Shikori in the semifinals on Saturday night uh, in front of a big crowd on television. The kid is incredibly poised, incredibly confident. He has always been that. And I think he's he's dealt with injuries. We've talked in previous shows about how, how high we are on Sebastian Corda as the next American to possibly make some noise, and you can tell where there are some limitations with McDonald's game with respect to the fact that you don't see him winning a ton of free points on the serve, but he seems to be very mature, very poised, very confident, strong off both sides, big forehand. How do you like Macky McDonald with what you're seeing from him really seeming to come of age in his 20s?
3: No, Mackie McDonald has had, um, I mean, really a pretty good career so far. He's had some injuries which have hurt him. I know he was out for at least a year, but he's been to the fourth round of a couple of slams. And um, he, he, he hits the heck out of the ball, serves well, competes well, never beats himself. I, I, I think the guy is um, is just a really solid pro that is is going to have a long career you have to give that guy a lot of credit. I mean, he, he did come back from this injury and I think that, um, you know, he's one of the great American hopes. He has been hovering around. I mean, he he's been in the top hundred before, before his injury and, and he's been hovering between 100 and 150, but as of late he's had some really, really strong results. And like you said, Andy's really, really poised handles himself really well on the court. And I think he's confident that he can play with anyone in the world. That's what I saw this week, which was the most important thing. So I think going forward, when he plays the big names, I, I think he actually believes now that he can beat them. And so I think we're going to see some even bigger results from him. You know, he won the NCAs, Andy, from UCLA.
1: Yes, he won the NCAAs. So, Matts Paul Anacone made the comment during the final where McDonald came up just short against your boy, Yannick Center, and he said, this guy is a real high tennis IQ guy. He knows what he's got. He knows what he can do. And we talked a a show or two ago about the decision to play college tennis. And Johnny informed us a little earlier, in case we forgot, that Mackey actually did win the NCAAs out of UCLA. Do you think that there's a chance that some of this tennis IQ that Paul Anacone refers to – was honed to some extent playing college tennis and that that is now potentially paying dividends at this point.
2: Absolutely, I think playing college tennis, when I look at, I mean, I don't know what goes on in his mind, but as you you keep saying, he looks very poised. He's he's very mature, obviously. Uh, What is he, 26 years old, I believe. He, I think, would not have had enough weapons and strengths To compete as an 18 year old on the professional tour. And he's obviously really talented. Uh, He's got unbelievably good timing, but I think he could have gotten beaten up very badly in his first couple of years on tour, if he came out straight after high school. So I think that he needed to get stronger physically. And I think that he most probably needed to get stronger mentally. And I think if you come into college with the right attitude, that happens. But, and you touched on it, when you have a high tennis IQ uh, that Paul Anacone uh, often talks about, uh, it's really good and important if you believe there's a chance you can win. What I worry about when I see uh, uh, Mackie McDonald play is that he also, on the other hand, knows his own limitations. So when he's up against the best guys, it's not that good to be too clever. You actually want to kind of switch your mind off and just go for shots. But I I, am a little afraid that he's so um, interested in the tactical aspects of the game that I think he could get lost in there because of the Novak Djokovic being slightly too good uh, because Sasha Zverev hits the ball a little bit too hard. And I know exactly how that feeling is. I had a few matches uh, against Miroslav Mechir. I know that, Johnny, one of your favourites. And I remember going into the match. This is in 1988. I just won the French Open, just won the Australian Open as well. We're playing in the quarters of Wimbledon. And after about 10 minutes, I, I thought, well, this guy's way too good. I can't beat him. I was thinking too much. And I think Mackenzie McDonald needs to somehow figure out to switch off the tennis IQ in certain matches and just swing from the hip. But if he's in the match with a chance, I think that he's going to be a very tough out, uh, especially in three out of five sets.
1: I think a tactical decision that he may wish he had back against Yannick center match was the fact that he chose to serve and volley at times it seemed maybe not to be the right time. He was unwilling to grind and he was actually having some pretty good success grinding, but when he gave Sinner targets to pass, Sinner came up with the goods more often than not. Uh, So, I mean, no question about that. Now, Johnny, one of the other up and comers that you talked about in, in recent shows was the South African Lloyd Harris. Lloyd Harris had a big win this week in DC taking down Rafael Nadal in Nadal's first match since Wimbledon and then actually it wasn't his first match because he had beaten Jack Sock 7-6 in the third in the first round and then Lloyd Harris would take him down four in the third actually let's go back to Sock and Nadal we hadn't seen much of Nadal in a while we certainly hadn't seen much of Jack Sock in a while were you surprised to see
3: him take Rafa to the limit the way he did and, and, and were you pleased to see him do so not really, I mean Jack sock has uh won a challenger event uh a few weeks ago, and then he in Newport, I think he quartered had a couple of big wins and he's and won the doubles i mean he's been playing well and uh he he's fought real hard to come back. You could see that he's he's been you know putting in the time on the on the practice court and you know, Rafa's coming over, uh, you know, to the states. He hasn't played in a while on, on the hard court. Jack has been playing. Um, you know, he's used to the surroundings, and and he and he's been competitive. And you know, you get that serve and that forehand going. And 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 he's you know he's been top ten in the world. And I I, I do believe that he can feels he can play with these guys. And I don't think Rafa's at the top of his game. So, you know, we've talked about this. So, you know, these guys. It's the, the tennis is so deep. You know, and and a guy like Jack Sock, knowing that he's been there before and has, has beaten top guys, um, it doesn't surprise me. And and as a matter of fact, you know, he, he could have won that match. Uh, the next match, you know, Lloyd Harris with the big serve. And I mean, that guy played the match of his life. I mean, uh, you know, he his highest ranking is just outside the top 50, but he's obviously got tremendous potential. And so, you know, Lloyd Harris, what, what you know, what a great week for him to have the biggest win of his life.
1: So, Mats, we just got done with the Olympic Games, and, and in watching a lot of the, the, the races, the track and field, the swimming, we see a lot of these brilliant athletes pace themselves. They will jog to the finish line or cruise in because they know that they've qualified for the next round, so they don't swim or run their best times until it starts to get to the final. Is that, to some extent, what we're seeing from a guy like Nadal who hasn't played since – uh, you know, since the French Open and getting back into the hard court season, he gets a six and a third win over Jack Sock. You know, it's a tough, close match, maybe a little more than he bargained for. He plays Lloyd Harris. He loses four in the third. All right, that's enough tennis for me for this week. Is there a chance that he's, he's more got his eyes on the prize for the U.S. Open than to worry about whether or not he goes the distance in D.C.? Uh,
2: absolutely. Um, absolutely. Rafa, I would think, goes comes to America looking for an average of two to three matches a week. Uh, and that's, he got his two in Washington, Cincinnati, and the Canadian Open. He hopes to get uh, a couple in each of those. If he does well in the Canadian Open, he, he will likely miss Cincinnati. He's done that in the past when he's won the Canadian Open. So yes, I think so. I think he just needs some matches. I think he, he would like to have a little bit of confidence from those matches, but I think it's more just a match situation and know how he pulls up afterwards. Uh, What is hurting? How hard uh, can he train? Because obviously in matches, we know that now he's going to go as full as he can. So I think that he's, yeah, he's looking to, uh, to, to most probably get five or six matches under his belt before the U S open comes around. And if he does, Three out of five sets against most players is a serious advantage for Nadal. So he looked good to me. He looked really good. I mean, yes, he hasn't played for a while, but but against Lloyd Harris, I thought he looked he looked good enough where I'm not um, afraid that he won't find uh, top form come the U.S. Open. You know, we
1: watched Coco Goff during the clay court season, guys, and we watched all of the tough matches that she had, and it, it really panned out that she would do well – at the French do well at Wimbledon. And we talked about how this might be exactly what she would need to really be able to sustain a top 20 career and be considered a legitimate top 20 player and not just a flash in the pan who goes crazy and goes to the semis of a major and suddenly she's in the top 20, but then it ends up being like a, you know, a Sonia Kennan or a Jen Brady who we really haven't seen much sense from them golf seems to be a little bit more consistently getting into the deeper rounds maybe now we're seeing this from Mackenzie mcdonald but maybe it's not quite as high profile because tennis channel doesn't choose to show him on television the way they will show coco golf any chance they get but then we see danielle collins uh break through and win in san jose she won the tournament uh and i don't know how much of it you saw johnny or matt but in the process do you feel like she won a lot of fans? Cause I certainly don't. I mean, to me, she looks like if she were wound any tighter than she is, she might be like one of Eddie Van Halen's guitar strings.
2: I think she's an unbelievable competitor. I have to, that's all I really uh, uh, can say about Daniel Collins. I don't know her at all as a person. I do know if I was coaching somebody, give me Danielle Collins because she's a serious competitor she's fit, she moves well, she plays aggressively enough, obviously also gone through the college system and to come out after college and be that tough mentally, I mean, there's, the fire is burning inside there. So I would say that Danielle Collins, uh, she's going to be tough to beat. She has been tough to beat in the last few years on tour, but now you give her a win um, against uh, Kazakhtina. I think Danielle Collins at the US Open, you don't not want to play Collins Uh, And she has a way, whether you now, like you said, Andy, uh, she's winning fans or not. I think when you go and watch Danielle Collins play, you know what you're going to get. She's going to be out there. She doesn't care what you think as a spectator. She wants to win this match more than anything else uh, that is going on in her life right now. And that's who you want to root for. So I think that at the US Open and these American tournaments, it's not that hard to get behind her because you are going to get the best out of her in every single point, every single match. So I'm actually a big fan of her tennis uh, and her her fighting spirit. Now things should be tough to beat. And again, I think it's great for American tennis to have another one uh, like a Jennifer Brady who's shown uh, the younger generation work hard, have a good attitude, hate to lose, and watch out. You can get to the top of the game.
1: Danielle Collins, Johnny, what do you got? I mean, we've seen her humiliate her boyfriend at the French last year we see her complaining to the umpire because there are people in the crowd that are making noise during incredible points and she doesn't like that particularly when she she uses loses a point I mean I I, I've got problems with the way she conducts herself I really want I, I when she first came out from UVA I really liked and wanted to root for her and I'd like to get there again I'm just not seeing the type of on-court demeanor to me we talk about how poised Mackie McDonald is and how easy he is to
3: glom onto and to root for I'm not seeing it from Collins yourself well I think that that's her fire and I think that she's a pistol I think that that's just her personality and I you know I mean she isn't maybe the the friendliest player that you you would see on tour for sure um you know, uh, two-time NCAA champion, and she—I she, think she got to the semis of the Australian Open a couple of years ago. Uh, I think she has got a tremendous career ahead of her. I mean, she, like Matt said, I mean, she is one heck of a competitor, and um, she, she, she is very, very confident, believes she can win everything, and, and she's on a hot streak. I, I think we're going to see big things from her, possibly even at the U.S. Open. I do have a trivia question about her. For the two of you, can either of you name her coach? Sven Grundfeld.
2: I'll jump in here, Johnny, because I only know uh, uh, one coach, and, and he she was coached by Nicolas Almagro, great ah. top 10 Spanish player, a couple of years ago at the French Open, but I don't think I've seen him around so I would not know.
3: I, I think it is Almagro still, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, and I didn't even know he was coaching.
1: Speaking of great one-handers, well, I'll tell you this about Danielle Collins, and that is very simply that if we're ever going to have her on this show, particularly after this segment, it will have to be one of you to reach out to her because she certainly had not taken my phone calls at this point. We know that. Uh, nor would she have anyway, but that's okay. All right, when we come back, um, it seems like it's way too uh, often of an occasion, you guys, that we're having to pay these tributes to the passing of, of tennis players that have gone way too young. But we've got a couple when we come back, and we hate to do it. You're listening to kickserveradio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We'll be back in just a quick minute.
0: Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho. Matt's v Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt's v now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high-quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area, They have yoga and Pilates as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I had never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with Matt's is an amazing experience. One I assure you, you will never forget. After my clinic with Matt's, Every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent, reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to matsvlandertennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to gravity fitness and tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho.
1: back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Andy Zodin, joined by Matt's Vlander, Johnny Levine. And guys, you know, we spoke about Bill Scanlon recently uh, at the end of last year. We talked about Gordon Forbes and Dennis Ralston um, and, and Alex Olmedo. I mean, we've just been losing so many from our sport, uh, particularly before their time this week uh, Mike DePalmer uh, who you guys both know well I met a couple of times great guy and a guy that I grew up with a little bit older than me but also from the Dallas area Mark Turpin uh, from the Turpin family and let's start with Mike DePalmer who played collegiately at the University of Tennessee if memory serves and Johnny I'll start with you because you guys were in that same class of great junior players from that era your 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 history with Mike and I know that you've been talking about this and you've been hurting over this for quite some time.
3: Yeah, it was really, really sad to hear. We've been following um unfortunately Mike's uh you know sickness over the last several months. And uh, you know, Mike Mike De Palmer Jr. um is a guy that I grew up with, and you know, he's a year or so older than me, but um, you know, his dad was a was a big figure in tennis at 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 Boletari's and Mike was one of the originals there. And so there's a crop of guys that that I'm close to that were even closer to to Mike. I wasn't super close to him, but obviously knew him quite well and played, competed against him. And, you know, he's had a great junior career, had a great career at University of Tennessee, and then had a great professional career, reaching 35 in the world in singles and, and was a great, you know, doubles player high ranking top 20 in doubles and had big results in grand slams. But even more importantly than that, um, Mike was just a was a great guy and, and very well liked on the tour. I don't think there's anyone that I knew of that would ever have anything negative to say about Mike, all positive things. And it's just really, really sad for for the people that knew him and his family and uh, the tennis community at large, you know, Mike um, coached Boris Becker, uh, you know, later after his tennis career. And I know they enjoyed a lot of success together over a lot of years and, uh, my my heart goes out to his family and um and and, he, and Paul Anacone, who I know was super close to him and and had some nice things to say about him today on Tennis Channel. So um,
2: yeah, it's a tough loss for sure.
1: Matt, you had a history with with Mike as well. You guys were out there competing.
2: Yeah, I played Mike uh, in doubles many times. I believe we played in singles a couple of times for sure. He, uh, yes, he was a great guy. Um, always really positive and really good attitude, whether it's singles or doubles. But I think for me, that uh, generation, and Johnny, obviously, I didn't know you uh, or play you as well, maybe, as I saw Mike De Palma around, maybe because he played more doubles than you. Uh, But to me, uh, he represents that next generation of American tennis players when we in Europe thought that you had to be sort of a little bit of a, on the, from the other side of the track, a little bit of a jerk in Jimmy Connors, uh, John Mackinac when he was young. I mean, and then suddenly, so, so we didn't have very high hopes for American tennis players being Europeans, to be honest. And then guys like Mike De Palmer comes around and you realize that, oh, wow, he's just a proper, nice uh, young man, um, always looked good on the tennis court, had a very attractive game, tough serve, but it was more his demeanor around the courts, on the court, that I think put uh, American tennis players in a different light for me. Uh, and then, uh, and I think those, those people and players, they, that's their legacy to me, is that he was just a great guy, and, uh, and he was as important to American tennis than, than a lot of these superstars that win majors.
1: And then on top of that, guys, uh, Mark Turpin passed uh, f- just a few days from, uh, as we're recording, on August 8th. And Mark, part of the, you know, the the, the the tennis, it was really like Texas tennis royalty, the Turpin family. And anybody that's heard of T-Bar M, uh, the T and T-Bar M stands for Turpin. And uh, the Turpin boys in Dallas, Texas were role models for all of us. Uh, Mark was born in Oklahoma, but, but lived most of his life. In Dallas, many people know a little bit more about his brother Jeff, who was a great player, uh, made it to the junior Wimbledon final before losing to Yvonne Lendl. But he and Mark, Jeff and Mark, were teammates at SMU, and they had an amazing, legendary team. Johnny with the likes of Jay DeLieu and, uh, and and the Turpin brothers and Chris Delaney and some some amazing players back in the 70s. Mark Vines was part of that group as well. Um, Randy Crawford told me today that that Mark Turpin was one of the most talented doubles players he was ever on the court with or against and I said "Well, what kind of guy was he because you I, I didn't know the Turpin boys as well they were across town at t which was really the premier tennis program in Dallas and I was over Craig Carden, and I were over at Brookhaven across town and always kind of looking up to those guys and occasionally getting an opportunity to play tennis over there and with Mark and Jeff Turpin being a little bit older we of course looked up to them and and Mark, you know, had a great career at SMU, and 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 did some damage out on the doubles tour for for several years. Married his college sweetheart Kathy. They had four beautiful children. One of which Ashley Turpin had a tremendous career as a junior in Texas, and and played some at A and M, and played some at SMU as well. So Mark married Kathy, played a little pro tennis, but then went to the ranch in New Braunfels, which is where T Bar M had a, a a tennis ranch with a lot of camps and. And, uh, and great resort work that they did. And Mark lived out his years running that place and doing a great job. And everybody that went to the the bar Tennis Ranch in New Braunfels always had a great time, always spoke uh, spoke well of Mark Turpin. He was a bit of a prankster and a jokester. Uh, you can only imagine he and Jay DeLuey getting together and some of the fun those guys must have had. So rest in peace, Mike DePalmer. Rest in peace, Mark Turpin. Two legendary tennis families, the De Palmer's and the Turpins. Thank you all for everything that you have done and contributed to our sport. Mats, thanks so much for your comments. Johnny, of course, yours as well. You've been listening to kickserveradio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We are so sorry that we have to continue to bring you this news, but um, these are people that have to be spoken about. These are people that have to be memorialized, and we are honored to be able to do so. We look forward to... Brighter days as we talk about the U.S. Open going forward, and we look forward to catching up with all of you in the next few weeks on kickserveradio.com.